Hello, and welcome to WISMED On Call, a podcast by the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, John Rather, General Counsel for the Society, and joining me today is Darren Martin, who is a Student Services Coordinator in the Office of Student Financial Aid at UW-Madison. Darren, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This episode is part of a special financial literacy series, What I Wish I Knew aimed at answering questions from young physicians, residents, and medical students about topics that may not be covered in medical school. In this episode, we're talking about a subject that's perhaps all too familiar, managing student loans. Data show that the average medical student has about $195,000 in medical school debt at graduation. Most of those students go on to complete their training in a residency program, some also get married, start families. You know, I had a professor who used to say, life doesn't stop when you go to school. So there's a lot to think about as they begin their career and think about the future. So Darren, let's start with the basics here. Can you explain the different types of loans available to medical students? I absolutely can. So basically, the t- there are three types of loan programs. There are federal student loans who where the lender is the United States Department of Education. There are also private educational loans, which are based made through banks and credit unions. And then finally, there are institutional loans that basically the, fi- the, in- the college or university lends to the student. And they are the lender as well as the servicer for the loan. And within some of that, we hear about subsidized versus unsubsidized loans. Can you talk about that difference as well? Yeah. So, um, Good, uh, good thing is medical students will only have unsubsidized loans. Um, there was a change a number of years ago with the Budget Control Act that phased out subsidized loans for graduate and professional degree students. But some students will still have unsubsidized unsu- loans that they have from undergraduate school. Can you talk about some of the trade-offs between those different types, When which ones have a little bit better terms or which ones are better prioritizing? I think it depends. Um, so right now, federal loans tend to be most attractive just in terms of its setup because you have embedded in federal student loan programs a lot of benefits and programs you can take advantage of. So federal loans tend to be the the premier loans in terms for students to go after. Private educational loans, it really differs depending on your financial institution, depending on what your credit score is or isn't. That determines how good or bad it is. Institutional loans are somewhere in between federal and private educational loans. The government considers institutional loans to be just like a private loan, but a lot of schools are trying to model their institutional loans like federal student loans. So that's great background. Now let's assume I'm that med student who's graduating. I've got the average $195,000 in debt burden on my shoulders. How do I determine which ones to pay in what priority? So it depends on the advice that you get from your financial aid office or from other colleagues or friends in the medical school. So a lot of people, it depends on your priority in life. If you want to be aggressive and pay off your debt fastest, then you're going to start off by being aggressive and using all your discretionary income to pay it off. But in general, in terms of the order of operations, in terms of what I advise students to do, um, I advise students to try to pay off any private educational loan debt that they may have from undergrad or grad school first, just because private educational loans mostly tend to have least the least favorable terms and conditions. I was I kind of call a private educational loan a private educational mortgage or a private educational car <laughs> loan. Um, the terms and conditions are pretty similar. They're pretty unforgiving in terms of uh, if you can't make a payment. If you can't make a payment, then they're going to find a way to get their money. So I usually say if you could, if you need to prioritize anything, you need to prioritize paying off private debt. 
So some of the things we're looking at is, was there a forbearance period during your residency, for example, or was there interest accruing that entire time? What about economic hardship forbearance and things like that? Are those commonly utilized, and which ones have better terms for that? Yeah, so for federal student loans, you tend to have the option of doing deferment, whether it's economic hardship deferment or residency forbearance. Um, so federal loans are set up the best for options in terms of repayment. Institutional loans sometimes have similar terminology to federal loans. So you may have a uh, deferment. You may have a forbearance options. Private educational loans tend to really not have either. You do have a grace period until you have to start paying. Some lenders, private lenders, you don't have a grace period. So I would say, again, that order of operations is still federal, institutional, and then private loans. So when we're talking about terms like forbearance or uh, deferment, Does that have to do with whether I'm actually being charged interest during residency, even though I'm not being paid? Which is which? Yeah. So it it depends. So deferment, deferment is the better of the two options between deferment and forbearance. Deferment, there's in-school deferment where a student legally does not have to make payments towards any loans while they're in in in-school status at least half time. Forbearance uh, tends to be like if a student has like a medical hardship or um, a financial hardship, that's another option to not pay loans. The downside with forbearance is it's it's a limited amount of time that you can get it. You can get it up to three years for a specific situation. And at all times while you're in a forbearance period, while you don't legally have to make principal payments or interest payments, your interest is still doing it. its daily accrual, accrual. And then at the end of your forbearance period, whether it's two months, six months, or 12 months, any unpaid interest moves into the principal balance of the mm-hmm. loan. And that's a process known as capitalization, where just unpaid interest moves into the principal to create a higher balance. And then you have new interest that accrues on top of the higher balance. So I didn't ever require payments, but I was still getting the interest charged to it. I'm just going to have to pay that much more when I do start paying. Yes. yes okay. Absolutely. So we've talked about considerations in setting up our payments, which ones you want to tackle first. And that's generally the least favorable terms are the ones that you want to tackle first. And obviously, that's things like higher interest rate or whether you'd have deferments available to you, um, things like that. So now I'm that student. I've still got the the huge debt load. Um, I've set up my payment schedules. Now, what do I do to keep on top of this? How often should I be checking in? What should some of those considerations be as I'm in the repayment phase? Yeah, so a lot of students can basically set up auto pay if they wish to, just let it automatically come out of a paycheck or uh, whatever funding source. That's usually the simplest and easiest way. So you can just effectively set it and forget it like that old uh, uh, appliance uh, commercial. But yeah, pretty much setting it and forgetting it is usually the easiest and simplest. But a lot of times students may have to interact with their loan servicer, whether it's over the phone, electronically, via uh, via their website, to just um, because each situation and circumstance is completely different. And so sometimes you might be fine making payments for a considerable period of time but then need to step back or dial it back for whatever reason and so but again i think auto pay tends to be the simplest but not a lot of people would like to take advantage of auto pay but if you do take advantage of auto pay especially with federal loans you sometimes can get a percentage discount um, when making automatic payments and so for students who care mostly about interest rate that is an important feature of doing auto pay well a lot less chance you're going to forget a payment and end up in trouble for it right if it's auto pay as long as you got the money in the account, you're making your payments. Exactly, exactly. Because I know, especially with 
lives being so busy between work and school and family, a lot of times people sometimes do run the risk of falling into a default status, whether it's for federal loans, institutional loans, or private loans. And so it's really important to, if you're not doing the auto pay, it's constantly being in touch with your loan servicer in case life changes, circumstances change, because the assumption is, is that everything is going gravy. You're working that, you know, that high power job. You're always going to be able to have an ability to pay. But sometimes you don't, and your servicer needs to know that. You need to be students need to be proactive in that. And especially, if, it's not uncommon for med students to have multiple sources of loans, right? Not just all from the federal government or from private sources, some type of mix. So knowing your contact information and the terms for each one of those categories of loans that you have, right? It's critical. It's critically important, especially if for students who took out loans as undergraduate students and may not have access to the documentation, it's easy to forget. And so it's really important upon graduation or even while you're in school right now, just always having a, a, a good account of what type of debt that you have, how much debt that you have, so that it's not a sticker shock surprise when you graduate and you say, oh, wow, I have $300,000 in debt. I thought it was eighty. And so, yeah. So. so when you're juggling these different types of loans and we see interest rates change over time, what are some of the considerations that go into when and whether I should think about refinancing or consolidating these loans? Okay. So, that, so that the terms that you just brought up, refinancing versus consolidation, those have specific kind of um, connotations. Okay, so, so let's break it down. Let's yeah. start with refinance then. Yeah. Okay. So refi- whenever you refinance your loans, you're basically do- refinancing any federal debt, any private educational debt, and any institutional debt. Um, because private educational loans and institutional loans can't be part of a federal consolidation loan. So we're trying to get a lower interest rate on that same chunk of money that you're paying. Yeah, it could be, uh, it could be lower payments, lower interest rates, or you just want to pay to one source, one servicer. So a lot of times, but if you have a mixture of different loans, you tend to have to go to refinancing route if you wish to have one consolidated payment. Okay. So what's consolidation by comparison? So federal loan consolidation is when you have um, a direct loan or if you have some older loans, the Stafford loan program, any federal Perkins loan. So you basically want to combine all your federal loans into one mega loan one mega loan. Um, A federal consolidation loan basically takes your lowest interest rate, your highest interest rate, and it comes out with a weighted average. And so that's also attractive to some students who have, may have interest rates in the eights, but also in the threes, you want to have it weighted to be 5%. So that's a really attractive option. So how soon after I start repayment should I start to look at this? Is it a every year thing? Is it check-in maybe three years in? When should I look at it? I would say as, as often as possible, because again, it, de- it depends on each individual student's situation, but I would say at, as a baseline, within 30 to 90 days of graduation, you want to start to do the, re- you want to be in knee deep in the research about whether consolidation is best for you or refinance is best for you, because everything has its benefits and its trade-offs. And also to another thing about loan consolidation, um, once your loan is consolidated into the one mega loan, any unpaid interest also gets added to that mega loan. So you may have a higher principal balance. So you're sacrificing a higher principal balance for a lower monthly payment. And so just having an understanding and awareness, awareness of what the benefits are, but also what the negative trade-offs might be. Yeah, because we think about if I'm going to refinance a house, well, there might be additional closing costs or things like that. Are there side costs associated with doing these things, or is it more just does 
the economics get you a better deal. Yeah, it's it most most processes of refinancing and, and um consol- consolidation is free. So federal loan consolidation is free. With refinancing, it does depend on the company that you're going with, um the different lender. They may have certain fee loan fees or kind of closing um fees as pro- so people would have to do their own individual research and due diligence to see um what uh, each option offers. But these aren't small t- things of money we're talking about. I mean, my wife and I both have grad degrees. We have been told for years ago, talk to our local credit union about consolidating ours and seeing if we could get a lower rate. We sat on it for years, finally did it last year, and I went back and ran the numbers. It cost us a year in terms of the amount of extra time we're going to have to pay on our loans if we would just have refinanced it five years ago and we just waited too long. So it's important to think about this early on in your repayment schedule, right? Absolutely, because there was a point probably in the early 2000s where interest rates for federal loans got down to a rock bottom of about 2.8%. So lots of students were actually beginning to consolidate loans while they were still in school in order to lock in that rate. What their students were doing by as a result, they were sacrificing their grace periods because they wanted to lock in that interest rate. So it is important to pay attention to the timing of things. It's like so right now you can get a low interest you could get an interest rate of six percent on your loans that you take out right now. But um, it's just watching the trends and try, trying to pay attention to um, the different unfortunately market forces that are at play that may determine whether or not your interest rate is at thirteen percent or is at like seven percent. So being a savvy consumer and keeping track of this stuff could save you a lot of money. I Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're talking about ways to kind of chip away at our, our debt, make it a little bit more manageable. Let's talk about kind of the larger uh, things that can be done, um, not just chipping away. And that's things like loan forgiveness programs and repayment programs that physicians may have available to them through, you know, maybe it's through service in the military or... Uh, working in certain areas. Can you explain some of those options that are more the forgiveness? You don't have to repay them at all? Yeah, so that's the big one currently, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. This program has been around since 2007 when President Bush at the time introduced it as a mechanism to have students who go into public service be able to have their loans forgiven after a certain period of time. So that's the main big one that most people in um, the public good and and also uh, certain fields understand and are aware of. That's not just doctors, though, right? I mean, that's anybody going to public service, nonprofit type work. Even lawyers like me could take advantage of that. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, and a lot of people are. Um, One a statistic that maybe came out a few months ago were roughly eight hundred thousand students or former students were part of public service loan forgiveness. And so, so the way the program works is you have to make one hundred and twenty on time payments or ten years effectively of payments. At the end of the ten year period, any remaining debt is forgiven. Although, so right now there's a process of roughly around 1,000 to 2,000 people who do meet the terms and conditions. But the important thing with loan forgiveness or public service loan forgiveness is while your loan is forgiven at the end of the 10-year period, it's considered then subsequently taxable income. So that's something that students need to be aware of. So like if you have $100,000 of loans forgiven at the current tax rates, you, you could come out with a pretty interesting bill at the end because that's now taxable income. Okay, so you have to plan for that, but still it's something to consider. Absolutely. If you know you want to be considered for something like primary care or just a public service or academic research or just medical-related research, that is an important thing to consider, uh, especially if you're not necessarily going to be a practitioner. You might be more of an academic researcher. You might be paid towards a lower end of certain pay scales. 
That's so, something to think about. So there's the public service loan program, which is available to lots of different types of people, including physicians. And then there's some programs that are more specific to physicians, like serving in uh, underserved areas, for example. Um, are the terms of those any different, or are they just different qualification points? So for loan repayment programs, and so students might hear this as LRPs, um, loan repayment programs basically are when, so they're through the National Institutes of Health for students who choose to do academic research because the country needs more academic researchers. Um, it's One is through the Health Resources uh, Service, uh, HRSA, I believe. Um, and so one is through HRSA for people who want to do primary care or serve in underserved areas. And then there's also programs through the United States military, through the different branches of the military, for, through their health uh, profession scholarship program and loan repayment programs. And so the loan repayment programs actually can be really attractive if you're willing to commit to a certain period of service, whether it's doing a certain period of academic research or at a certain period of primary care work or a certain period of military service. Um, you're not gonna, people aren't going to be sent abroad um, like on Grey's Anatomy as field medics. It could happen, but most likely you can work at the VA or you can work at Walter Reed or you can work in an administrative setting or you can choose to basically go overseas. But again, loan repayment programs are, be- are attractive for this reason. The National Institutes of Health will give you up to $35,000 a year tax-free um, if you commit to a, a period of service. And, we, and the tax-free part is really important because with public service loan forgiveness, it's taxable income. But the government will give you money, the base amount towards loan repayment, and they'll pay the tax on top of it. And so that's, that's something I actually tend to recommend to a lot of students to at least consider. In addition to wanting to be a practitioner, definitely consider doing academic research or considering um, working in underserved areas. Because, yeah, the t- tax-free income, uh, tax-free loan repayment is really, really nice. So the biggest difference being that in the, the public service one we talk about first, you pay your loans for 10 years and then it's at the end. And you're going to have to, we said there's some tax considerations there. With this latter one, with the repayment programs, it, the government gives you money to pay your loans. It's not capped at the 10 years, but you don't have to pay them out of your own pocket. Exactly. And plus two for loan repayment programs, for most of them, you can do continuing contracts. So if you have $200,000 in debt and you wish to do uh, work through the NIH, you can continue, you can reapply through a continuing contract. So in theory, you can have your loans paid off in full by just serving a period of anywhere from three to six years of uh, service um, with either NIH or any of the other programs. So that's really attractive, too, to just say, wow, I can actually get this done in three to four years as opposed to 10 to 25 years. Okay. So I'm a med student who's graduating this coming year. You've got 10 seconds with me. What's the number one thing that I ne- you need to get across to me? Um, research all of your options. That's that's that, that tends to be because yeah, that tends to be the most important message. Just do start doing your research. It's never too early to do it. it sometimes can be too late for the reasons you brought up earlier. You know, you can you can miss out on certain um, benefits and opportunities and end up paying more in the long run. So and don't just believe everything you hear, right? I mean, I, I made that mistake at the end of law school is assuming what the people in the year ahead of me had told me is how it works. And I missed out on some neat options on setting up auto pay and things like that, that if I'd just done my own research or talked to um, a professional like you, I might have seen everything that was out there. Yeah, and that's what I tell medical students, at least at UW-Madison, a lot. You're going to hear different voices, whether it's other students, 
faculty or staff or even my office. Sometimes we're consistent, but sometimes our messaging is a little different. I preach loan debt minimization, whereas others might say, take out as much as you need to. The return on investment will be greater years from now. And so it's just, it's just, it's really important for students if they have the time and the available resources to do so, to do their own independent research and balance that with the different voices that are coming at them. So same question now, it's a few years later and I'm, I'm just exiting residency, I'm going to be attending physician. You got 10 seconds with me. What's the number one thing I need to know? What your, again, what your options are, especially I tell students again, especially graduating students um, about entering residency. You want to think about your plan for what you, where you want to be and who you want to be two years from now, five years from now. 10 years from now. So in that two to five year period, depending on the length of your residency, you might still be in that residency period. Your income is gonna be a lot lower to, to have an ability to pay your loans. Some people might have children in that time frame. Some people might have a lot of life circumstances. So it's really important that if a student has a goal, a sh- it needs to be a short-term goal, a medium-term goal, and then a long-term goal. That will help them, especially in their planning or n- not planning, depending on their situation. So. Darren, this has been extremely helpful. I mean, I, if I'm a med student or if I'm talking to med students, I say get to know your financial advisors and your student aid office really well because this can make or break the first few years of your professional career. So thank you very, very much. Um, this will wrap up this episode of WISMED on Call. Thanks to the Wisconsin Medical Society Foundation and the Wisconsin Medical Society Insurance and Financial Services, your partners for life. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have suggestions or feedback, send an email to communications at wismed.org. Thanks for listening.